You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. In today's episode, we're going to be going through year-end tax strategies. These are going to be the strategies you need to know so you can implement them before the year ends to maximize your tax savings. So every year, we talk about what you need to do before year-end. So today, we're going to be covering real estate-related strategies, some of the more general stuff you could do before year-end. And finally, we'll be talking about bookkeeping, right? The importance of having good books and records. We're actually going to be having one of our partners, Taylor, join the show in a few weeks to go more in depth on that, but it's never too early to get started. So we're definitely going to dive into that a little bit. Um, so let's just kick it off. Uh, why don't we uh, Why don't we start with, uh, well, if you didn't already know, Brandon is launching a new podcast called the Major League Real Estate Podcast, MLRE, and that's going to be launching soon. So if you do want to join the wait list and be the first to know about that show, you can go to therealestatecpa.com slash MLRE join that waitlist and we'll shoot you out an email once that's available. But without further ado, let's just dive right into it. So real estate, right? Reps, real estate professional status, everybody's favorite strategy. What do people need to know before year end? So real estate professional status, before year end, you need to, if you haven't already, create a time log of your activity for this year. That's probably the biggest thing is, and that's where you want to start because to qualify as a real estate professional, you have to spend 750 hours in real property trades or businesses and more time in real property trades or businesses than you do anywhere else. The only way that you can possibly prove that you spent 750 hours and more time than anywhere else is to have a time log. So if you can't create a time log, if you can't even get into that basic habit, don't don't claim real estate professional status. You know, if you are like, hey, we're gonna work with Hall CPA and we love you guys. We want you guys to you know, claim real estate professional status for us. Know that we will not claim that position for you unless you're able to furnish a time log to us that we will then scrutinize and make sure that you are actually working on the property because we won't take positions that we can't substantiate on our client's behalf. So that really is like, I don't know, what would you say? Is that not the first place to start with real estate professional status? Yeah, I mean, having your time log at this point in the year is pretty much the only thing you can do for the real estate professional status besides just finish out the year. Because actually, believe it or not, I asked Alexa, you know, the Amazon thing today, how many hours there are in a month? And there's 730 hours in a month. Does that so, include like sleeping and stuff? Yeah, that's the entire hours in a month, Every all yeah. the hours. So at this point, if you're not already started laying the groundwork to qualify as a real estate professional, chances are you're not going to be able to do it between now and the end of the year because you'd have to work every waking minute yeah. okay, of the next five weeks and you'd maybe get there and you'd maybe get there and no way the IRS is going to believe that you spent every waking moment of your life for the last month and a half. So if you didn't already start on this journey, unfortunately, I don't think you'll be able to get into reps by the end of this year. And I think, what is it, roughly like twelve or 13,000 people are listening to our shows every week now. So we have about, what, 800 clients. So assuming every single one of our clients listens, then there's still another 11,000, 12,000 people out there that are not our clients listening to this show. So here's the piece of advice for you. If you are using an accountant who does not ask for your time log and just takes your real estate professional status 
position at your word, there is a very good chance that they don't understand Section 469 and all of the risks associated with claiming real estate professional status and all the recent legislation related to real estate professional status. So, you know, you really have to be your own advocate here when it comes to tax strategies inside of Section 469, which is the passive activity loss rules, which we talk about endlessly on this show. But you really do have to be your own advocate. You have to make sure that your accountant is doing it right. It doesn't make your accountant bad. It's just that it's a very niche, niche piece of the code that if you don't work with a ton of real estate investors, you're not going to know the nuances and the ins and outs. Like, like most accountants know real estate professional status. They know the rules, but they don't like really check that box of let's make sure we get a time log from everybody so that we ensure everybody's doing it right. So it's just these like these extra little steps. It would be the same thing. Like if you came to me and you're like, hey, we want you to run our restaurant accounting. I would say, why don't we go find an accounting firm that services a lot of restaurants? Like we're not the best fit for that. We could do some of it, but we're not going to to get all the niche, the nuances correct, you know? So everybody listening to this, you have to be your own advocate. You have to really just because your accountant says, Oh yeah, it's fine, doesn't actually mean that it's fine. And starting with the time log is a really good way to start substantiating the real estate professional status designation, position, and you'll save yourself a lot of headache at some later point because audits are presumably going to start ramping up, right? IRS is getting more budget. We're starting to see some audits related to short-term rentals. So if there's more budget and the years go on, you can expect these audits to continue and potentially even ramp up. So not to scare you because there's nothing to be scared of as long as you substantiate your position with that time log. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So now we're going to move on to the short-term rental loophole, another popular strategy. Now, one thing I've noticed over the last few years from anywhere ranging from the Facebook group to the insiders group to clients alike is everybody wants to rush and try to buy a short-term rental between now and the end of the year. But mind you, this episode is going to be coming out on November 21st. Okay. So that means you have five weeks, roughly five weeks between now and the end of the year. So if you were to try to use the short-term rental loophole, the few things you'd have to do, right? Just to give a practical overview, you have to acquire property, you have to place it in service and start renting it out, right? In order to use the short-term rental loophole, you need stays, right? Average stay of seven days or less. You actually need to get guests in somewhere between at least two to three, but ideally as many as possible before now at the end of the year. And that can be very challenging to do with only five weeks left. But if you've already been using this strategy, the same thing goes for the real estate professional status that we were just talking about before. You need to have your time log. You want to have that substantiation on hand. You want to make sure that you have some way to prove the average period of customer use for your property. Most platforms, Airbnb, VRBO, will be able to provide you with this information or at least the information you need to generate your average state to calculate that. So that's just something to be in mind or be mindful of rather when you're considering the short-term rental loophole around this time of the year. The only other thing that I would add here is we get questions. I shouldn't say we really get questions because I think that we've done a good job of educating, but what we see in other groups, short-term rental groups is, does anybody want to trade days with me for, sometimes it's for reviews, which I also think is against policy but trade days with me so that we can call it placed in service, right? So the way that this would work is I have a short-term rental and Tom has a short-term rental and I call Tom up and I say, hey, 
you buy a couple nights at my short-term rental and I'll buy a couple nights at your short-term rental. And now we have a stay on the books. We have cash that has come in. So we're going to book it as rental income. And now we get to say we've placed our property into service. Does that work for this? No, it does not. Under Section 280A, there's actually a portion of the code that actually disallows that. It says that if you are exchanging properties, even when there's consideration, aka money being exchanged, it is considered a personal use day. It's effectively what it says. If you don't believe us, you go look it up under Section 280A. It's it's there. To expand on that, it says even if you pay fair market, right. it's still a personal use day. So basically, if you are uh, I forget exactly how it's worded, but basically if you have somebody stay and then you get as part of that to also stay somewhere else, then that's a personal use day. Yep. So unfortunately that won't work. Neither will renting it to a family member because here's the deal with family members, lineal descendants, brothers and sisters. Basically what ends up happening is that's considered a personal use day, even if they pay fair market value, unless it's considered their principal residence. Okay. And that's typically what that means is you're going to you're going to rent it out to them for a long-term basis. They're going to live in the house as their as their primary residence. And no, you can't make it your primary residence or the principal residence for like three days. <laughs> I don't, it, it, it doesn't quite work like that. So don't want to get too cute and, and try to get too fancy over there. Uh, you can rent it to a friend, presumably, if they actually stay at the property. And again, you're not exchanging days with them, like Brandon just mentioned. So uh, just some things to be careful of. Those are some like things we see people try to pull before year end. And remember, you also can't just place in the service. You need stays. You need customer use in order to prove that you actually have seven days or less. And there's a tax court case. I don't have it off the tip of my tongue, but there's a tax court case that confirms that you cannot possibly determine the period of customer use without customers actually using it. So that was kind of the outcome of that case. So if you can't get guests in, you might be better off just pushing this off to next year. And yes, I know you're going to have to deal with 60% bonus depreciation perhaps and not 80%, but better to do that than to put yourself in a precarious situation and be subject to you know, back taxes, penalties, and interest if you do end up losing an audit. Could be could be painful. Could be painful. Can't uh, You can't determine use if you don't rent it. Go figure. <laughs> right, right. All right. So right. the other one that we have here is cost segregation timing. Now, at the end of the year, the cost seg firms, and we love them. So this is not anything against the cost seg firms. Just to make that clear. But they all have sales goals, right? Just like any company, you got to close the year out strong. December 31st bonuses are coming out. So cost seg firms will sometimes, especially if they if there's like newer sales reps that have joined these cost seg firms, what they will say is you have to get the cost seg done by the end of the year. And that is not true. You can do the cost segregation study up until the point that you file your tax return for the year that you place the property into service. So if I bought a property now, November 9th, 2023, I do not have to do the cost segregation study by the end of 2023. I can do the cost segregation study up until the point that I file my 2023 tax returns, which could be April 15th, 2024, or if I extend it for six months, could be October 15th, 2024. So I could engage in cost seg studies next summer for the properties that I acquired this year in 2023. Now, to take that even a step further, even though I said, you know, you have to get it done by the time that you file your tax returns, that's technically not even true. Uh, you can do a cost segregation study on a property whenever you want to. It could be multiple years later. 
if you do a cost segregation study on a property multiple years later, you will be adding significant complexity because now we have to file something called a form 3115 and a 481A adjustment, which takes significant work. It's complex and it's complicated, but we can still do it, right? So if you bought a property in 2023 and you forgot about cost seg, or if you're listening to this right now and this is the first time you're hearing this and you're like, wait a second, I brought property in 2020 or 2021 that I didn't cost seg. You can go and file that form 3115 with your next set of tax returns and you can effectively cost segregate it and retroactively capture all that depreciation that you should have taken, including bonus depreciation. So very powerful tool, but just don't fall for the year-end sales pushes that these companies naturally have. And again, we love our cost seg companies. We really do. But again, don't feel the pressure when they when you get marketing material. It's like, hurry up. You better get it done by the end of the year because you, you don't need to do that. Hey, real quick. If you're a longtime listener of the show, then you know we give all of our tax secrets away for free. From how to use the real estate professional status and short-term rental loophole to save thousands of dollars in taxes and just about everything in between, we don't hold anything back. And that's because our goal is to help as many real estate investors as possible reduce taxes and build tax advantage wealth regardless of budget. And the only way we're able to help more real estate investors is if you can rate, review, and share the podcast. If you could take that one small action, just drop us a review. It'll take like 10 seconds. It will help more real estate investors become tax smart. We appreciate your support. And now back to the show. Absolutely. So moving into another strategy that is somewhat along the same lines as cost segregation, we're going to be talking about the lazy 1031 real quick, right? So the way this works for those who might be uninitiated. So what happens is if you sell a property in the tax year, so 2023, and you have a capital gain, and it's passive for you, then what you can do is you could take passive losses that you might have suspended from prior years, as well as current year of passive losses, and use it to help offset that capital gain and the depreciation recapture tax on the sale of that property. Now, if you're in that boat, maybe you sold the property earlier this year, or maybe you're just closing or selling a property right now, you might be wondering how you can mitigate that capital gain, and you might even be looking for passive losses. So Again, just like the short-term rental loophole, probably pretty challenging to acquire a property if you haven't already and place in the service. So you can go ahead and run a cost segregation study on it and generate losses that can help you offset this capital gain that we're hypothetically talking about right now. So your best bet to do that at this point in the year is probably to invest in a syndicate or fund as a limited partner who will be generating passive losses for you via cost segregation and all that good stuff. Now, having said that- Assuming that they get the property into service by the end of the year, right? Right, right. Of course, of course. And you want to confirm that with the sponsor. And also, you want to be careful. You want to make sure you, you do your due diligence. You Especially want to make sure... in today's market. <laughs> right, 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 right. There's a lot of properties may not make sense, right? It's frothy out there. <laughs> yeah, it is frothy. There's some asset classes that I believe are strong. I'm not going to... We're not giving investment advice here, but the point of the matter is, here's what you're going to do. Uh, you're going to do your due diligence. You're not going to let the tax tail wag the dog. If you can't find a good investment, it might be better to pay the tax. Because you know what? I can't speak for everybody. I'd rather pay some tax than you know lose my entire shirt uh, if the investment that I invest in goes south because I made a hasty decision. So be prudent. Do your due diligence. Don't let the tax tail wag the dog. So have you ever heard of the reverse lazy 1031? The reverse lazy 1031. What is this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is a term that I just made up. Okay. We should go trademark that. All right. Yeah. You heard it here first. The reverse lazy 
1031. Okay. So 1031 exchanges are bound by timelines, right? You have an identification period and then you have a closing period. So you've got to identify the properties and then you've got to close on the properties within certain timelines. The lazy 1031 enables you to effectively roll forward the gain by selling a property and just collecting the cash. We're not going to do a real 1031 and then buying the next property and bonus appreciating it to offset the gain of the property you just sold, right? Which is in effect enabling you to roll the gain into the next property because the new property, since we just bonus depreciated it, will have a much lower adjusted basis, thus a much higher built-in gain in that property. A reverse lazy 1031 is just like a reverse 1031 where you buy the replacement property first and then you liquidate. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Tom's like freaking yeah. out on the video right now. I just go. rushed this. Okay. So since we're at the end of the year, what you should do is look to next year and decide, am I going to sell any properties in my portfolio? And if the answer is yes, you could now calculate what the tax bill might be. It's called, you would, you would call us up and say, we want to do a tax projection on selling this property that does cost you money we're not going to do that for free but getting an idea of what that looks like could be very helpful in planning your acquisitions next year okay so if i have a property that i know i'm going to sell next year or that's my plan and it's the end of 2023 so i'm i'm relatively confident this is what i want to do i want to sell this property Let's just assume that I've got a $200,000 gain between appreciation and depreciation recapture. I can be on the hunt starting January 1st to buy my replacement property that I'm going to cost second bonus depreciate, right? So I could buy a property on January 30th that's maybe, I don't know, 500K. And maybe my cost seg study gives me a $150,000 deduction that I get to claim for next year. And then I could sell the property that I'm planning to sell November of next year, right? And I, so I'm still creating a gain, a taxable gain in 2024, but I'm also creating a taxable loss in 2024 because I bought a property and I sold a property in the same calendar year. So there you go. Reverse lazy 1031 exchange. You heard it here first. If anybody there else starts go. using that and doesn't credit me. I'm going to be mad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is the first I'll time I heard about that. I'm mad. So, just sad. <laughs> I, I believe it's the first time I heard about it. Actually, Justin Shore, we're probably going to bring him on an episode in, in the not too distant future. He has another interestingly coined term, which I'm not going to share here yet. I'm going to let him drop it. That has to do with <laughs> passive losses. So I'll, I'll wait for him to drop it. But I don't and, even know what that is. I'm curious. I want to know. It's, 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 uh, don't don't share. No, no, no. Yeah, I'll, I'll just listen to the episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have to wait. Well, you, everybody have to wait and see. All right. Yeah. Uh, so let's go into another quick one. This one should be pretty simple. Tax loss harvesting, right? Everybody's probably heard of this one at this point. It's pretty straightforward. If you have financial assets like stocks that are in a loss position, you could sell them, take the capital loss, and then you can use it, the capital loss, to offset capital gains that you might have or up to $3,000 of ordinary income. Now, again, we're not giving away investment advice here on this show, but it would be probably prudent not to sell assets you believe are going to recover in the foreseeable future. Because if you do, there's the wash sale rule. So if you buy it back within 30 days, you don't get to claim the loss. So just something to keep in mind. If you think that the stock is temporarily down and it's going to rebound, I would maybe not. I, you, you have to make your own decisions here, but I'm just letting you know how it works. Okay. But so, so the tax piece, so we're not telling you to 
go and liquidate. What we are telling you is that if you liquidate, you can create a loss that you can then use on your tax returns. Right. So explore that option at the end of the year. And a lot of brokers and I think robo advisors, they kind of do this automatically too. So if you've right. got your portfolio with some company like that, then they're probably already doing this on your behalf, but it doesn't hurt to give them a call and see. Yeah. I was going to give one quick tip and you should go speak to your financial advisors before making any decisions. But I'll tell you this, the S&P 500, S&P 500 and total stock market indexes are very well correlated, but they're not substantially identical. So what I'm saying is if you have one in a loss position, you could sell one buy the other and still have the same trajectory if they were to rebound. But mm. This is not investment advice. You go make your own decisions. So Tom, one point, I'm actually, I'm looking at your list of year-end tax strategies that we're going through right now. And there's one point that's missing. Mm. And uh, I was reminded of it recently because somebody was coming through our, our sales pipeline and they were talking to our business developers and they said, I only want to join you guys if you can save me $400,000 in taxes. $400,000 in taxes. And they're like, I know cost seg and I know bonus depreciation. So you got to be able to generate $400,000 in additional taxes. And so I said, we can do that. I can 100% promise you <laughs> that I can get that done for you. And I was talking to my business developers. We were all on a, a sales meeting. Uh, so I was like, I was like, guys, somebody says that you tell them we can absolutely deliver that for you. Here's how it works. You pay our firm a million dollars and you will get a million dollar tax deduction. And if you're 37% plus state, like there's your $400,000 in tax. Right. There you go. Do they sign right? They should have signed right then and there. <laughs> they didn't specify how you get to 400K in tax savings. They just said 400K in tax savings. So what a perfect solution. They did yeah. not sign. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I'm kind of bummed out. I was kind of hoping they did. But there's got to be some humor in this, guys. There's got to be yeah. some humor in this. Anyway, it was a funny thing. But back to the real list. So vehicles and equipment, we'll do those at the same time. You can section 179 and use bonus depreciation on vehicles. And then you can accelerate deductions on equipment that you use in your trade or business. Vehicles, you know, there's different rules depending on the gross vehicle weight rating of the vehicle. Uh, the 6,000 pound rule is the one that's most often cited to be able to deduct the entire cost of the vehicle. But you do have to use the vehicle in your business. So you can't just go and like buy a new vehicle and immediately deduct the entire thing. If you are only using it for 60% business, then only 60% is available or eligible for the deduction. The remaining 40% would be considered personal use and not available to be depreciated. Um, but you do with vehicles, you have to use it 50% at a bare minimum. And I believe it's 50% for how long? 50% for five years, for the for next five, five years. years, for the next five years. Yeah. So if your personal use, if it drops below 50% during the first five years of ownership. Yeah. You have to start recapturing some of the depreciation. And there's yeah. actually a really complicated calculation for it that I don't know off the top of my head, but you have to basically start recapturing some of that depreciation. Yes. Yeah, so this isn't like, you know, I know TikTok loves to tell you they, they drive around in their little Lamborghinis and they tell you I the US government or the taxpayers. Well, they actually say the IRS paid for this car, but guess what? No, you paid for this car, by the way. I don't know if people realize that when they're watching these TikTok videos, like people go, oh, the IRS paid for my vehicle. No, 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 no. I paid for it. Tom paid for it. You, dear listener, paid for it with your taxes. <laughs> right. Right. So, so somebody's paying for it and it ain't the IRS. It's us. But anyway, 
So they're all driving around these Lamborghinis and like, oh, yeah, you just buy a Lamborghini or whatever and you get to deduct it. It's not quite how it works. You do have to use it for business and you have to use it consistently year over year for business. So when you're when you're writing off a vehicle, you're making a deal with the government that you are going to be using this for business for the foreseeable future. Be careful with that tax deduction. Right, right. And and just one quick thing we'll throw in here is that if you use 100% for business between now and the end of the year, you can maximize your deduction. But again, you have to use 50% of more going forward. Now, we're going to move right along into retirement accounts because there are some things you need to understand about retirement accounts before the end of this year. So if you have 401ks, and I'm pretty sure this also applies to 403bs and the related accounts, uh, you have to make the employee contributions. So you, you have to make your contribution before year end. So if you haven't already made a contribution and you're looking to make a contribution, uh, you got to get that done before 1231. All right. So that's first things first there. Now, when you get into HSAs, not quite a retirement account per se, it's a health savings account. But that account needs to be open before the end of the year. You have until 4.15 to go ahead and actually make that contribution, but the account does need to be open. All right. Now, when it comes to IRAs, the good news is with IRAs, for the most part, you don't have to make the contribution before year end. You can make that contribution up until the filing deadline, 4.15. So you do have some wiggle room there. But just know, I think the most important thing to know is the 401k contribution has to be made before year end. Otherwise, you might not be able to make it or you can't make it. So that is something to know. Now uh, we got charitable deductions, right? Charitable deductions have to be made before year end. So if you want to go donate to your favorite qualified charity, okay, then go make sure you do that between now and the end of the year if you have not already. Otherwise, once the clock strikes 12.01 or 12 rather on the first of the year, that's it. Done. Then last but not least, bookkeeping. 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 Everybody's favorite, right? Yeah. Well, bookkeeping is really important. It does not have to be done before the end of this year, but everything you did in 2023 related to your business or your rental properties, you're ultimately going to have to report that onto your tax returns. And in order to do that, you're going to need profit and loss statements. You may need a balance sheet if you have a partnership. And thing is, if you start waiting until you get into the tax season to do this until like January, February, March, it's going to get more and more tedious. You're going to, it's going to be more stressful because you're going to be in a time crunch, right? To try to get all the stuff together that you did this year and Q1 and next year could be painful. So might as well get a head start and start handling your bookkeeping now. Let me talk a little bit about the bookkeeping too. So the problem is if you wait to do the bookkeeping in January, February, March for like all of last year, you are scrambling to get it done so that you can file your taxes. And if you're not scrambling to get it done and you're handing it off to your accountant, they are scrambling to get it done so that they can do your taxes. So you're effectively adding work to your accountant's plate that is not tax related, right? Like doing our bookkeeping. I mean, it's tax related, but it's not tax preparation. And what happens is it makes tax season worse for your accountant and also for you. Communication lags, quality drops. So do yourself a favor and also do your accountant a favor and get the bookkeeping done by the end of the year or at least get caught up. You know, I mean, this episode's releasing into November, early December. All right. In the next seven days, catch up your bookkeeping if you're DIYing it. Get 2023 up to date. Up to date means Every transaction is booked. We have done a bank reconciliation per month, meaning that I'm downloading my bank statements from online and I'm literally going line by line. 
Uh, and QuickBooks Online has a really great feature that helps you with this. But I'm going line by line, and I'm going to make sure that every transaction is there. Because when you don't do that bank reconciliation, you end up with duplicates. You end up missing payments. You end up with like vendors who haven't been paid or accounts receivables that you haven't collected. Like There's a whole slew of issues when you aren't running a real accounting process. And you know the other thing that I think, too, is that if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, I haven't really done my bookkeeping. I need to get on top of it. I was just like you. Okay. And I say that as an accountant. All right. I've got 25 units on the side. And prior to this year, I was terrible at accounting with those. I mean, I would literally just do it in February retroactively, throw it all into a spreadsheet, do a pivot table, and then plug it into tax returns. The problem is, is that what I've noticed about myself and also working with other clients on this is that if you aren't measuring something, it's not going to get done and it's not going to improve. And so by doing this process at the very end of the year, that's when I get the feedback on property performance. And if I'm disappointed about my property performance, I've got no one to blame but myself because I wasn't on top of the finances on an ongoing basis. There's no way that you can be a serious investor. And I, I had this self-talk with myself. <laughs> There's no way you can be a serious investor and not have monthly accounting to some degree. You have to have monthly accounting, monthly bookkeeping, even if you're DIYing it. But if you're DIYing it, I was just on another podcast talking about this. Like, look, like you have to decide what to DIY, where to cut corners. And a lot of people try to cut corners on the bookkeeping and the finances. This is about to sound a little bit self-serving, but think about it like this. Like, I know how to build a bookkeeping business and a tax business. So if I join another business or join a partnership, a real estate partnership, I know how to do the bookkeeping, the accounting very efficiently, very well. I know the technology. I know the tricks. I know the systems. I can do that really well. So I can add a lot of value there, right? But if I were to go rehab my kitchen, I have no idea where to cut corners. I have no idea where to reduce costs. I have no idea. Like if I go rehab my kitchen, I might get three quotes for contractors. But at the end of the day, like I really have no idea if what I'm doing is effective. If this is not part of your strengths, you need to offload it to somebody else. We have a service that enables investors to offload their bookkeeping. We rolled out a bookkeeping level a few months ago, which means that the cost is significantly cheaper than like hiring an outsource controller or outsource CFO, which we also offer to people who are operating larger portfolios. So if you are looking for an outsource controller or an outsource CFO, we can do that as well. But we, we created this bookkeeping level that's priced very competitively because we keep running into the landlords who wait until the very end of time <laughs> to do their bookkeeping. And it creates a lot of strain for everybody in the process. So if we can at least give you financial reports on a, if we can clean it up, that's going to help everybody at tax season. But if we can also give you financial reports on a monthly basis, maybe you can track that performance a little bit better throughout time rather than being surprised like I have been when I only did the bookkeeping in February of the following year. Yeah, no, 100%. Bookkeeping is not something you could sleep on. You want to get that taken care of. The longer you wait, the more tedious and the more messy it becomes. We've seen our fair share of that too. So if you want to do bookkeeping yourself, you could join our bookkeeping course by going to www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash bookkeeping. We'll see you there. So one more thing uh, that I want to add, this is the actual last but not least. We are seeing more and more people wanting tax estimates and projections because the interest rates that the IRS is using, where they assess an interest rate on the amount that you owe them when your payment is late, that interest rate is now 
well, 8% first week of November. I don't know what it is when this podcast released. But if you think about that, if you owe $20,000 come April 15th, right? And you just extend your tax return. An extension is an extension of time to file, not pay. So if you owe $20,000 on April 15th, and then you don't like file the return or pay the $20,000 until October 15th, you're going to owe the 8% interest annually. So it's annualized interest. Um, so you're going to owe that for six months. And then you're also going to owe a 0.5% or one half percent failure to pay penalty, which accrues again, 0.5% per month. All right. So that's another 3% of fees and penalties if you go six months without payment. So on $20,000, that ends up being like 1400 bucks or something in, in interest and penalties. But then you also have the question of like, well, that $20,000 was probably due on January 15th, not April 15th, because you have to pay quarterly taxes. So we've got, we're probably really like talking eighteen dollars or $1,900 in total between interest and penalties on the $20,000 that we should have paid. The point though, is that you can, like the economics are starting to make more sense to get a tax estimate done on a quarterly basis. I mean, I think that the, the economics were always there. I should caveat that. But if you were used to like paying big tax bills on April 15th, then you might want to consider now engaging your accounting firm to run a projection for you so that you know if you should make a payment on January 15th to stop interest from accruing because it's getting very expensive to allow that to happen. Right. Absolutely. You definitely want to make sure you do that. So you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com, click that big get started button if you are interested in having that done uh, so you can learn more and request the consultation. And that's going to be it for this episode of the TaxSmart REI podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients, and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.